Welcome, everyone. 2020 was full of many surprises, and of course, not all of them were particularly nice surprises. The world of transfer pricing, of course, was hardly an exception. And brace yourselves, folks, because today's show is chuck full of depressing understatements. But while everyone knows transfer pricing has wrought havoc on some of the biggest multinationals in the court of public opinion, across the world and in actual court, multinationals only fared so much better over the last year. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Fiona Show, cross-border solutions weekly long-form deep-dive podcast about all things transfer pricing. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. On today's show, we're recapping the five biggest transfer pricing court cases of the last year and what they can teach transfer pricing professionals everywhere about how to conduct themselves, everywhere from documentation to the audit process, and hopefully just short of litigation. Though I'm sure there's plenty of advice to go around and how to succeed in that realm as well. We're joined by transfer pricing rock star and very dear friend of the show, Barbara Montagani, former competent authority analyst and more than 25-year veteran of transfer pricing at the IRS and the Big Four. Now currently the head of a private practice in the Beltway. Always love having Barbara on. And speaking of becoming a very credentialed transfer pricing professional, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words in this podcast. Send all three to The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Again, that's The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. And we will send you your certificate. Now, without further ado, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. There's no time like the present. Just ask Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. The UK Tax Authority is pursuing criminal investigations against profit-diverting large companies faster than you can say fish and chips. While the Tax Authority has yet to publicly name companies, criminal investigations are underway, demonstrating the priority of tax arrangements on the heightened scrutiny totem pole. HMRC has been paying close attention to the matter since 2015 when it introduced a diverted profits tax levied at 25%. Back then, with the corporate tax at 19%, HMRC wanted to steer companies to the straight and narrow. Fast forward to 2021, HMRC is not worried about inconsistencies. After all, those can be fixed with transfer pricing adjustments and increased corporate tax but about dishonesty. At a webinar in November, Simon York, the director of the HMRC's fraud investigation, said HMRC has, quote, live investigations involving some very large corporations where individuals within those companies have lied to us in the context of a discussion, unquote. So what does the HMRC think suspicious companies are brewing? A big pot of dishonesty. Did you get that dishonesty? Like it's a, anyway, it's out with the old and in with the new. Just ask Ghana. The West African country is issuing new transfer pricing regulations for 2020. The new regulations replace the 2012 regulations and they're closely aligned with OECD guidelines. Here's what taxpayers can expect. An adaptation of BEPS Action 4, 8, 9, 10, and 13. The new regulations provide guidance on transfer pricing for intercompany services, intangible assets, cost contribution arrangements, financing arrangements, and business restructurings. Regarding intercompany services, the regulations require documentation to illustrate services were rendered 
and the benefits to prove they passed the benefits test. And wait, there's more. The new regulations require a country by country report with a deadline of 12 months after the financial year end. You know what this means. Ghana is in line with BEPS Action 13's three tier documentation requirements. As for local and master file, they must be submitted electronically four months after the financial year end. There's no beating around the bush for the Australian tax authority. The ATO has announced that it will be scrutinizing interest-free foreign subsidiary loans as a part of its latest practical compliance guidelines. What's a hop, skip, and a jump away from scrutiny? You guessed it, an audit. The tax administration has categorized these types of loans in either the amber or red zone, which is tax speak for high or very high risk for audit, respectively. Luckily, taxpayers don't have to be sitting ducks. The new guidance explains how to show that terms of the loan were conducted at arm's length and didn't result in any tax benefits. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. We're back with Barbara Montagani. Thank you so much for being with us again, Barbara, on today's show, talking about transfer pricing court cases and landmark cases of 2020. Just to start things off, remind our audience where you're located again and what's happening there in terms of COVID-19. Sure, Matthew. Yeah, I am located in the greater metropolitan D.C. area in northern Virginia. And things are, you know, bad as they are everywhere, although I will say that in my little very limited area that I move around in, everybody seems to be very, very responsible about distancing and masking and those sorts of things. So on those rare occasions when I do actually go out, things seem to be okay. I think this area is a little bit better recently, but of course we're all holding our breath for the post-Thanksgiving surge. Yes, the the post-holiday surge overall. Now, I, I know we've discussed your larger career in certain contexts when we've had you at our Arizona or our Florida retreats in the before times, as, as my significant other <laughs> likes to call them. Uh, but what? tell our audience today, at least, what drew you to transfer pricing? Uh, well, you know, that's an interesting question. I saw that, and, and my... <laughs> My most honest answer is, I mean, I was aware of the fact that um, there were cases and there had been regulations, but it wasn't something that I had necessarily thought I'd be interested in. But, 
you know, someone says, hey, I'll pay you money. And you say, sure, that would be great. And then as I started getting into it, it was a wonderful time to get into it because it was just when transfer pricing as a concept, I think was sort of, in my words, growing up, like becoming a thing. So it was very, very interesting to be there and to see how it went from being, oh, I have to do my transfer pricing documentation. Let me throw something together, blah, 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 blah to get it done to transfer pricing has become an extremely fundamental, critical, central aspect of my business. For sure. For sure. Also a much larger part of economic life overall. And I think that's been a driving factor, especially over the last 10, 15 years in terms of it becoming a household name you know, depending on who you're talking to. But what mistakes do you see multinational companies making repeatedly? I know we've asked you variations on this before. So if you're seeing anything in COVID that might prove relevant, this is your chance to let us all know. <laughs> of course, none of my clients ever do anything um, wrong repeatedly. No, never. We know that. I think right. that, and it's hard. I don't want for one second for people to think that I think that getting a handle and keeping a handle on all of your intercompany transactions and your transfer pricing policies is like simple because it's not, but it is critical and becoming more critical. And so I would say that to the extent that I see m and making mistakes, it is in sometimes, and this will come up as we start talking about the code case in a minute, going through, getting things set up, and then going, done, good, close it, put it in the drawer, and maybe not remain as not remain as up to date. And part of that has to do with obviously the, the business is over here, the tax is over there, operations for the Asia Pacific reasons over there. You know, people aren't necessarily talking to each other all the time, and so it's a big, big challenge. But it is the one place that I think MNEs need to continually up their game on that. Of course. Now, what do you find most interesting about transfer pricing? I guess what I find most interesting about it is, as an economist observed to me many, many years ago and first disagreed with him, it's really not tax. I mean, it's tax, but it is fundamentally business economics it's how do I, as a multinational organization, do business across borders in a way that makes sense and in a way that will keep me under the radar for the ever more aggressive tax authorities who want their money. That's right. And 2020 was a big year in a lot of ways, understatement maybe of the last 365 <laughs> days, but it was also a landmark year in terms of transfer pricing legal cases on this episode of The Fiona Show. We're breaking down five of the biggest international cases, the implications for taxpayers and what they can learn from the process and verdicts. So for the first case we're going over today, that's Coca-Cola versus the IRS. Just to give a quick recap here. Battle was waged over five years. Decision made in November 2020. Battle waged over five years, but decided 
Just two months ago, Coca-Cola charged operating plants in Ireland, Brazil, and Mexico, among other jurisdictions, modest rates for intellectual property, which increased taxable income there and decreased it in the United States. Coca-Cola determined the royalty based on a 1996 closing agreement between the taxpayer and the IRS. IRS position for the current case was application of the comparable profits method. U.S. tax court ruled that the IRS was right to apply the CPM 1996 agreement non-binding and reallocate royalty income for trademarks and other intangible assets to the U.S. from foreign affiliates. The court also agreed with the agency's recalculation of Coca-Cola's taxable income for 2007 to 2009, which ended up totaling over $9 billion, and Coca-Cola was ordered to pay $3.4 billion in additional taxes to IRS. Barbara, lay in here. What are the transfer pricing fundamentals that you see at the heart of this case? You know, Matthew, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, there was lots of like, oh my goodness, the IRS won. Like, wow, since the IRS has not the best record when it's gone to court. But in in reading the case, some of it was almost, well, of course. And it, and it relates to, I think, what I found interesting about the case is that it gave me an example of sort of how transfer pricing changes and develops as an issue of corporate concern. So back when they entered into the consent agreement, it was, that was the way you dealt with things and you figured out and you settled it and everybody signed off and then you were done. And there was an understanding that as long as you kept doing the same thing and nothing much changed, that you were probably, if not, audit proof, you certainly had a good story to be able to tell the auditors. But the problem for Coke was that somewhere along the line, nobody actually ever looked at that again, while the business changed. And while they're certainly, you know, they, they did in fact pay royalties and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they did do that. But I was struck by the fact that there seemed to be an aspect to the to the company's position that was well but we have this we have this settlement and then having to try to explain why it was still good even though the IRS was able to put together what was ultimately a a persuasive case that based on the functions, risks, et cetera, and assets of the foreign affiliates that they were simply being overcompensated. And that in fact, they were being compensated in a way that suggested that they had valuable intellectual property that they did not. Just diving into the particulars of this case a little bit more, given its center around intellectual property and intangibles, does any advice go beyond merely hiring a specific person to handle it in terms of what Coca-Cola did right or wrong here? I think the two words I would say that I wrote scribbled here on my on my piece of paper that I printed out my question, pay attention. Yes. I think the critical thing right. is to pay attention and to coordinate between and among finance operations, the C-suite, um, 
you know, all of those things. In my experience, when I've worked with um, companies that have gotten into trouble or had things sort of happen, sometimes it really was a case of, well, I didn't know that. You know, I didn't know that the operations group in Europe was going to close the German plant and move the operation into France. Like, because if I'd known that, I would have told them that would trigger an exit tax and we have a problem. Um, and so then, so those are the sorts of things and they happen and they don't mean that it's a bad company or they aren't running it well. It, it just means that there's an aspect of, there's a heightened need for awareness that is hard to maintain. Now, the beverage giant did receive a slight reprieve. The court acknowledged the company's dividend offset treatment to honor royalty requirements that reduced its bill by $1.8 billion. What does that decision reveal about the importance of honoring royalty obligations? That you should do it. <laughs> I mean, what it, what it really does is say, what I heard was, you didn't pay close enough attention to any of this other stuff. and your functional and risk analysis really didn't match up with what we were seeing in terms of these particular related parties, but we would give you credit for the fact that you did honor the obligations that you had. And so I think that it again focuses on the agreements and the obligations under the agreements. And because they did that, they were able to get a little bit of an offset to the transfer pricing adjustment. And just to keep things easy for CPE code words during this episode of very intense scrutiny of complicated legal issues, we're going to make our first CPE code word for this episode, Coca-Cola. Again, that's the first CPE code word for this episode, and it is Coca-Cola. And case number two is Ireland versus the European Commission a legal battle centered around whether Ireland provided state aid to Apple. Back in 2016, Ireland was charged with providing illegal state aid to Apple entities and was ordered to pay a whopping 15 billion US dollars back in taxes in July 2012. The General Court of the European Union annulled that decision. The case emphasized the importance of a functional analysis of the permanent establishment. And the judgment looked at the selection of tested party and TP analysis for profit level indicators. And the European Commission is appealing the EU's decision, which could take two years to settle. Uh, Barbara, once again, dive in. What are the transfer pricing fundamentals that you see at the heart of this case? To me, the fundamental of this case is can or should, and in this case it was the EU, second guess the agreement that is reached in this case by Ireland and the taxpayer regarding the appropriate range of returns to the Irish taxpayer as a result of the Irish taxpayer's business in Ireland. The fact that the, the whole state aid thing could be another whole hour that I won't delve into, but we have to remember that this was a state aid case which meant that what the European Commission was looking at was, did the EU appropriately conclude that the agreement, it, it was in the form of essentially an advanced pricing agreement between Ireland and Apple, did it provide Apple with a competitive advantage vis-a-vis -vis 
other similar companies doing business in Ireland. After slogging through that entire painful opinion, the bottom line is no, you are second guessing them. And you, EU, and it was always my sense with the state aid cases that often the EU started with a presumption of there must be something wrong here because it is an agreement between one company and a government and there must be something wrong with that. And But I think that the, the, the most interesting aspect of it is that the EC does make it very, very clear that if you, as you know, the EU, as the entity that's going to be reviewing a transfer pricing agreement arrangement, wants to challenge it, it is not enough to say, well, you could have done it another way, or, well, but there might be, there might be some ways that you could look at this. You know, my expert looks at it differently than your expert. And therefore, you know, my expert better. And I think this really made it very clear. And I think, thank goodness for it, the fact that second guessing is simply not part of an appropriate transfer pricing analysis by a country, by the EU, by whoever. And I think that comes into even more focus in the next, in the discussion in the next case, in the discussion of Glencore, but I will say that that what it again, what it what it says to me is that if the taxpayer and the country work together to identify and document and do all of those things, then and determine, for example, this is a PE, how much do they get? How should get? Then then it, it's solid. And even if I, the European Union, might reach a different result, it doesn't allow me, the European Union, to do away with what agreement that was reached in good faith. So yes, there were certainly ways in which some things, you know, and, and the time frame for when this was being done was sort of when, you know, you were doing transfer pricing documentation, but maybe we hadn't fully figured out how much to do or how to do it. Um, but it was clearly the fact that Ireland and Apple had worked together very long and hard, identified an appropriate result that represented arm's length returns, and they were entitled to rely on that and not be second-guessed by the EU. It is difficult to imagine Ireland making an agreement with a company substantially smaller or not to Apple, uh, so to speak, along these lines. But is there something that small and medium sized multinationals can learn from this case from beginning to end? Well, first of all, I think that and I don't know about Ireland with advanced pricing agreements, but certainly in the U.S., there are smaller and mid-sized companies that do fairly regularly seek to obtain advanced pricing agreements with the U.S. And so certainly that just, I would say, underscores the fact that one needs to be thorough in their functional analysis and, and that once you've reached an agreement 
that you continue to follow it, then you shouldn't be able to have that challenge. I mean, in the U.S., it's different because obviously there is no other higher entity, like there is no functional equivalent to the EU that can come along, challenge an, an APA agreement between a U.S. taxpayer and the Internal Revenue Service. But it does, I think, underscore again the need for taking the time, doing all of the sometimes painful work of being able to tell your story. That's right. Now, what does the ruling show about the importance of transfer pricing documentation and adhering to permanent establishment profit allocation rules more generally? Well, I think it shows that if you do that, which they did do, Ireland and Apple, that don't leave yourself open to the kind of challenge that the EU is trying to make in this case. I mean, I think it's important to remember that with the state aid cases, the focus is really on did this agreement provide a benefit to this particular taxpayer that other taxpayers similarly situated don't get? So the analysis and what they're looking at is completely different from a regular transfer pricing case because they're actually trying to show, EU is trying to show that this this particular taxpayer, because of this agreement, was advantaged in a way that gave them a competitive advantage over other taxpayers. In terms of the APA context, or just in terms of having your transfer pricing set up so that, again, none of the countries that you do business in will bother you, it is very important to make sure that you do have a full explanation that addresses things like, oh, well, we are a PE, so we aren't going to skip over that. We're actually going to write it up so that you understand that, you know, we are obtaining the kinds of returns that a permanent establishment ought to expect to get. And again, the problem for the EU is they never could prove that there were other taxpayers out there that were somehow being disadvantaged by this result. Whereas in the normal transfer pricing challenge, you just have to show that it's not an arm's length return. And what does this case imply about the role of a thorough functional analysis in your mind? It further hammers home, I guess, the point that, again, you need to really look at it. No aspect of your business to the extent that you want to get into into an agreement with a government over it, there's just no aspect of the of the business that is unimportant to consider and to make part of your story. Because as soon as you're not talking about something, then that makes the tax authorities go, hey, why aren't you talking about that over there? Let me go look at this thing you haven't told me about. It's critical, really. Um, and I've said this before, I mean, you're your transfer pricing story and being thorough in your telling of it is just critical to avoid these kinds of situations. Of course. And the functional analysis is kind of the backbone uh, of that whole process. 
A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai rd. That's xbs.ai rd. And then case number three is Glencore versus the Australian Tax Office. It's a battle over whether a copper concentrate sales arrangement by Cobar Management, an Australian-related party, and Glencore International, its Swiss parent, was done at arm's length. Most recently in November, Australia's full federal court dismissed the Commissioner of Taxation's appeal of a 2019 court decision indicating that a third-party agreement consisting of independent parties doesn't need to be identical to show arm's length terms. Instead, they can use market performance and industry practice as evidence in arm's length agreements among independent parties in comparable situations. That 2019 decision relieved Glencore from a $92 million, that's Australian dollars, tax bill. The case had major implications for the understanding of Australia's transfer pricing rules. Prior to this case, there was very limited transfer pricing case law in Australia. Barbara, uh, you mentioned Glencore before, the similarities here, at least between Glencore versus the ATO and what we saw in Apple Ireland. But what do you think are the transfer pricing fundamentals at the heart of this case? There are a couple Glencore. of them. One is just agreements and intercompany agreements that reflect all the potential market conditions, financial conditions, et cetera, et cetera, that could happen and that are driven by the specifics of your business. So Glencore, again, it's a very specific industry, right? It's a very specific case, facts. Uh, any, any, any business that involves any kind of uh, industry that has the kinds of the kinds of market volatility very specific issues that apply to copper and copper concentration and those sorts of things any one of those types of industries where there are so many elements that you have no control over and that will end up determining whether you make money or lose money in a particular case. And so being very, 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 which they were very careful and very specific in terms of setting it up, explaining why they changed it, laying the whole story out, 
again, story. I've said that more than once in this. And setting it up so that the government, again, was put in this position or put themselves in the position of trying to second guess the business decision that Glencore made in terms of how to structure their structure their relationships with the foreign parties. And so the government tried to say that independent parties wouldn't reasonably have been expected to, you know, agree to this particular way that they that they set things up but they never actually were able to show that now again part of that is trying to prove a negative which is tough for the government to show that nobody would actually do that but it's not an it's not surprising to me that both this and also well pretty much all and, and especially cameco corporation i mean whenever you get into the kinds of industries that are, I'm not going to use the word unique, but that have very, very specific aspects to them that just don't apply to pretty much any other, you know, uranium is even different from copper. I mean, and oil is different from steel. And so I think that it's interesting to me, and I think that it's not overly surprised, let's say, that that the cases that became very big and went up very far were in these types of industries, I think. Because I think also sometimes the tax authority um, sometimes don't maybe fully appreciate the unique or the very specialized elements of a particular industry that do have a bearing on whether a particular company makes money or loses money. And that it doesn't really, it's not really driven by transfer pricing at all. If I'm doing drilling and there's an earthquake, I can't do drilling. So I'm not going to make any money. But, or if I'm going to, you know, I have no control, for example, on the market price of copper or uranium. And so I may or may not make money in a particular year, but my intercompany agreements you know, have to take into account the potential of those things happening. Now, what specific types of evidence should taxpayers compile if they are looking to change their related party agreements? I would say it depends on how they're looking to change those agreements. So if, for example, like in Glencore, they were looking to change the actual form and structure of the compensation based on their assessment of the market and the things that were going on in the market and the ways the market seemed to be working. So in terms of being able to justify that, definitely you need to have as much information gathered as you can to then explain, we found all of this, therefore we decided to change our intercompany agreements. Now you can also change the agreements and then go back and find the information that supports why you did it, that's not the best idea. But there has to be, again, a logical progression from um, things have changed in the industry. Something's happening. I don't know. Prices are going up. Prices are going down. There's a shortage of equipment to do what we do. 
my supply chain is whatever it is that may be driving a difference in the business. You say, here are all these things. Therefore, we have changed our agreement in this way. Therefore, we believe and will show that by changing it in this way, we are still going to achieve arm's length results. But I think that it, again, it has to be this, the logical progression from, oh, look what's happening to the business. Does this have an impact on my intercompany agreements? Yes, how do I need to change them? But I've said this before, I'll keep saying it again, it all starts with the business. Right, and market performance and industry practice can be used as evidence in arm's length agreements among independent parties in comparable situations. How do you think this application is going to be beneficial for legal cases that arise due to COVID-19? That's a very good question. And actually, I think that the OECD's recent guidance does try to address that in some respects. Again, in the very somewhat impenetrable way that the OECD sometimes has. But I think that when companies are going to sit down to try and do their 2020 documentation, assuming that you're a company in an industry that has had a worse year than usual, which is going to be a lot of companies, it's going to be very, very important to document those things, document much more than usual. You're always going to include something about your market and if you're an industry leader or if you're not, or what people, you know, to the extent that other companies in your industry addressed COVID, business issues around COVID in this particular way, and you did the same thing, that can be relevant. I think that that we know, I know, having been at IRS during the last economic crash, that there will be a lot of a lot of tax authorities looking to try to make sure that they are generating revenue and looking to companies headquartered in their country or large and large affiliates. If you made money last year, then I'm going to kind of think you should have made money this year and you're going to have to prove to me why you didn't. So Certainly we had situations, and this is particularly true around the quote-unquote limited risk or quote-unquote routine entities in those countries. Market conditions and industry practice, market performance, all of those things are going to be very, very critical, um, along with either the explicit or implicit understanding between the parties of who actually bears what risk and to what degree. Um, is going to be very critical in terms of companies being able to adequately document that their limited risk distribution or marketing or, or manufacturing or whatever entity in country acts nevertheless shows a negative a red red number on their profit statement for this year because of x y and z that's going to be a big challenge for many companies, but particularly those who have a history of identifying one of the parties to a transaction as being a routine, quote unquote, entity. And this keeps sounding like I'm giving out some sort of 
award or backhanded compliment by making them CPE code words, but I promise I'm just trying to make CPE code words easy for this episode. With that in mind, our second CPE code word is Glencore for this episode. Again, the second CPE code word for today's episode is Glencore. That brings us to our next case, very well known at least by the name Altera. At least the last few years, this has been a a court drama to say the least. And in any attempt to make this very, very long story short, uh, definitely sacrifices some details. But the basic parameters uh, here, the case focused on if costs in a cost sharing agreement consist of employee stock options. Uh, Altera urged that the cost shouldn't be included as unrelated parties would not have shared. They won in U.S. tax court and then lost three times in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that is putting a very long story short. In June, the U.S. Supreme Court denied a review of the 2019 decision. What are the potential consequences for companies that have left out stock-based compensation from cost-sharing agreements, and how hard is it to incorporate them in? For the most part, well, first of all, I'm always amused when, when particularly tax cases there's a cert petition filed because so few cert petitions are actually granted and this was not necessarily one probably had a better chance of being granted than some others because it actually was looking at whether the regulations were you know appropriately developed under the apa etc but it also you know kills a little time i think that my understanding and certainly in my work since particularly since the appeals court decision, um, and even before that, there were companies who were building in what they call clawback provisions or reverse clawback. So there were certainly companies who nevertheless were including stock-based compensation in, for example, their cost-sharing agreements in their cost pool but provided in the agreement that if it turned out that they didn't really have to do it, that they could claw back from the other country, whatever it was, the other country could sort of, you know, claw back that money. And then if you wanted to take the position that, like I'm in the Ninth Circuit, so I now have to actually make sure that I charge them uh, but hey, if something else happens, then you can do a reverse clawback. So you can do one of two things, and it's in the agreements. And it says, this is the amount, we're either going to charge it, but we have the right to pull it back if it turns out that the um, the decision is upheld, that the regulations were not done in compliance with, with the APA, um, or we're not going to, but we might have to later. So. I don't know of any companies that haven't addressed that in some way or other while this was outstanding. Any any multinational of any size with stock options at issue have done something. It's an uncertain tax position. It's something on the financials. It's They've definitely been tracking it. So, and you know, there's a whole lot of like painful stuff now with regard to, well, if you're in the Ninth Circuit, and, you know, arguably you better start charging or you better have been charging. But if you're not in the Ninth Circuit, then maybe the fact that it was the full tax court and the full tax court unanimously 
agreed that that cost based that stack based compensation that the that the regulations did not meet the requirements of the APA. Maybe you can continue to not charge them, but but I don't think I don't know of a single company that doesn't have something somewhere in their financials that identifies and addresses that so that whatever the ultimate ruling is, they can address that. The the more interesting question is as you've been tracking it, well, what if you know, what if you are? You're a Ninth Circuit company and and now the Ninth Circuit has said, hey, those regulations were good. And and you've been accounting for all those amounts. Do you take them into account for tax purposes in the current year? Do you go back? Do you have to amend tax returns to take them into account for early? You know, the, there's all sorts of questions. It would be good if the IRS would simply say that to the extent that you have any financial changes, adjustments, whatever, resulting from the inclusion of stack-based compensation in a charge to a related foreign party that you can just run all the numbers and figure it out and put it in your current year tax return. That would be helpful from an administrative point of view, both frankly for the IRS and for the taxpayer, as opposed to having to do a whole bunch of amended returns. You mentioned Cameco a moment ago in the CRA. This case has gone on forever. Another understatement of the year. And that brings us to our fifth case. That's Cameco Corporation versus the Canada Revenue Agency considered one of the most important transfer pricing cases in the world. This is over transactions conducted between the Canadian parent company and its Swiss subsidiary, specifically an intercompany contract beginning in 1999, setting the uranium price at 10 US dollars per pound and continued for eight years, which was the lowest global price of 2003, 2005, and 2006. The case itself focuses on if the agreement was a sham or tax motivated. Secondly, if the agreement should be recharacterized, was it commercially rational? And thirdly, if the price should be adjusted, is the price or is the price arm's length? And we just heard that the CRA is appealing last year's verdict. What transfer pricing issues are at the heart of this case? Cameco restructured and set up, and it, <laughs> and unfortunately for Cameco or whatever, there are certain countries where if you set up affiliates in them, it sometimes causes tax authorities to go. And so Cameco set in Switzerland and Luxembourg. And and so there were concerns that A, that was set up, that they restructured things so that they could, again, have more money going. So the Canadian company was paying the affiliated foreign party for access to this forget if it's the uranium or the copper or whatever it is i think it's the uranium and so my reading of it is that the government they did set up this agreement so that either the luxembourg or the swiss and swiss entity would purchase the uranium and that was from some russian company and then they then turned around and sold to other foreign companies 
So there was this whole lot of revenue that was kind of not ever coming. And the Canadian tax authority got upset about it. And at some point in the in the court case, I'm not sure exactly where, but at some point in the appeals court in discussing it says something like, well, the tax court judge concluded that this increase in value happened after they assigned the agreement and that nobody knew that uranium was going to become more valuable after 2002. And so therefore, you can't use hindsight. Suggest that somehow, oh, wait, you should have known that this was valuable when you transferred it. And and essentially, the appeals court said, yet again, you can't use hindsight to decide that you're not appealing any of the facts. So you can't now use hindsight to say, well, but these profits just should be in Canada, which kind of was how they came out with it. And so, you know, and there was a whole lot of stuff in the case about whether it was 247A or B, or, and I'll not bore you with all of that. But that really, the heart of the case is really, you know, in my view, can governments use hindsight to decide that whatever you did in year one was bad because of something that came up in year four? Cameco's restructuring was considered a, quote, sham by the CRA, given fiscal year 2020 that was so impacted by COVID, uh, it's likely many taxpayers have endured restructures, functions, assets, and risks finding new homes in the supply chain. Uh, so what are some strategies that M&Es can implement to minimize the chances of legal battles or disputes vis-a-vis -vis this case? Right. Now, I will say that although the, although the CRA originally claimed that it was a sham, they did withdraw that. And they, or the trial judge said, that's not right. And they didn't challenge that. So the sham was kind of something they just threw out there. Um, in terms of COVID, again, we're back to, um, to the extent that your business is impacted by COVID in a way that you either restructure, or you have to change your prices, or you have to change your supply chain, or any number of things. The critical thing is that you document, 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 all of that to the extent that, for example, I have a low-risk distribution entity, but they didn't sell enough to, you know, to even cover their fixed costs. And so, and that was because of these global situation. And so this year, they're just going to lose money, period. Again, explaining that in a way so that the tax authorities who will be looking with, you know, magnifying glasses or anything that will give them an opportunity to try and make a tax assessment, that you be able to, you know, document everything so that what your results match sort of what was going on. And again, I think there are certainly going to be, I'm expecting that there will be a whole lot more map cases than as there were, you know, in in the last big global downturn, you know, there are going to be tax authorities that are going to be looking to find ways to impose um, tax adjustments on entities that either lost money when they hadn't lost money in the past, or, you know, reported much lower profits than in prior years. And again, the, the story is going to be really critical 
it may not keep you from getting an adjustment because you know sometimes tax authorities will just do what the tax authorities do, but it does set you up really well for being able to push back on and justify the results that you achieve, whether you have some sort of administrative process, like we have appeals, something like that, or if you end up in court or in incompetent authority. That's right. And in speaking of appeals, the CRA is appealing the case again after two verdicts the courts have sided with Cameco. In your legal opinion, why does the CRA think they will face a different outcome? And what does this tell us about the CRA in terms of transfer pricing? Okay, a couple of things. One, in case you didn't notice, the costs that were imposed against CRA are north of $10 million with regard to this case. The end of the case says that um, at the very end, they say, it says that I would dismiss the appeal and give the fixed cost of $10,000, which the parties agreed for that appeal. And then they're dismissing the appeal about the cost because that was contingent on being successful in the uh, substantive case. To the extent that they are challenging it yet again, part of that I think has to do with the fact that that's a very big number that's sitting out there and that being able to say that you you went as, to as far as you could possibly go is probably, and, and frankly, at this point, you, you yeah. have what you have. You go to another level of appeal, and it's not like you can even bring up any new arguments. So for me, this falls into the category of we might as well, but I'm not sure that they would have done it had they not had such a big price tag on the initial costs that were imposed. Ten million's worth. It's a lot. It's worth, you know, certainly CRA, in my experience, has, you know, is very, um, is very um, rigorous and definitely not, not shy about continuing to pursue things. But this, in this case, I don't think... Right. Right. Ten million is a lot. I think you can't lose track of the fact that they're on the hook for ten and a half million dollars, ten and a half million dollars. Yeah. And they got to have something to show for it. And well, and frankly, or in the alternative, they have to show that they moved heaven and earth and did everything they possibly could. Yeah. To avoid having to pay it. So uh, with another appeal, what's so what's another ten thousand? If you can avoid ten and a half million. Yeah. Right. Well, and I do think, and for all I, all we know, there's some sort of thing in Canadian law that says that in order for Canada to pony up that money, that they need to have pursued every possible remedy. Which brings us to our third and final CPE code word for today's episode, and that is Cameco. They get the distinction, the honor if you will, of, of being our third and final CPE code word for today's episode. We promise that really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed we, we've hit a couple of common themes in the takeaways from a lot of these cases. 
even beyond just getting somebody very good in a team to to do this. But uh, what do you think are the lessons that we can learn, uh, especially from cases where it even boils down to, as, as you described on, on a number of occasions, the, the, the second guessing factor? What saves the m and &E in that case? Patience. The fact is that m and don't control these situations as much as they control many things. Once a tax authority starts looking into your transfer pricing and issuing adjustments, et cetera, et cetera, you have to have patience and bear in mind, you know, sort of who's in charge. You know, and I can say, you know, be transparent and give all of that. And, and sometimes you're just going to get an auditor or maybe an appeals officer that perhaps isn't as reasonable as they could be. I mean, when I read in a number of these cases, I'm struck by the fact that possibly the issue could have been resolved at an earlier level had perhaps one side or the other not gotten so invested in their position. Because that's the other thing that's important that you not get invested in the position too much. Um, certainly when I was in the MAP office, we were dealing with the other country, of course, but we also had to deal with our own taxpayers to sort of help them get over this notion that, you know, they felt that they were right. So if they're right, then should be able to just make it all go away. So being able to work through kind of not getting so invested in the position, but getting invested in what your interest is. Like, what is my interest as an MME in getting, I'm suddenly embroiled with name your tax authority and they're asking me a bunch of questions and they are not liking any of my answers. Make sure that you always keep your eye on what your interests are and not so much on what your positions are. Patience, these things just take a flipping long time. And those are hard lessons. I mean, if if you're a large multinational and you're used to, you know, being paid attention to, then you have to sort of adjust approach to keep your eye on what the goal is, you know, do you want, do you want this resolved or do you not? And certainly in the MAP context, as long as I could get the relief from double tax, I would feel like that was the goal. And then you just kind of had to let go of the, but I'm right kind of position. And that goes to the government and the taxpayer. One, one of the remarkable things about these, this litigation is when I read all of them, I think, you know, at some point, somebody could have said, hold on. Uh, okay, maybe neither side's right. Maybe both sides are right. Let's see if we can figure out a way to, to resolve this. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing 
software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp barbara thank you so much for being with us today this was a very insightful discussion before we close we have time for my favorite part of the show what we want to know we put our transfer pricing expert in the hot seat for a rapid fire round of questions always the first question is are you ready yes what did you learn about your working style through the pandemic? I learned that I need human contact and that <laughs> um, and that the not being able to travel, not being able to sit down with people, uh, not only did it make it harder to do my job, but I just I didn't like it. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you there. What is your favorite way to start the workday? What is your favorite way to end the workday? Okay. <laughs> I have two words written down here. My favorite way to start, coffee. <laughs> My favorite way to end, wine. <laughs> Amen. Uh, I will. That's the, that's the church I worship at also. <laughs> Can you tell I was raised Catholic? I'm kidding. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> If your transfer pricing career were described using a movie title, what would it be? You know, it's interesting, Matthew. I, I thought about this a long time. Well, let me just say the title to this movie popped up in my brain immediately. But having seen the movie, I, I, it's just the title. And the title <laughs> is Long Day's Journey Into Night. Well, now I want to see it. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah. Well, there's several versions of it. Uh, the first one was in 1962, but anyway, the, and I yeah. think it might have, they might have had a made for TV, but in, in any event, um, it, you know, long days, it, it took me really 15 years as a tax professional before I stumbled on transfer pricing uh, 25 years ago. And then, um, you know, and then, you know, as one starts the glide path to retirement, it's, you know, the long day's journey into night. I like it. Well, now I'm going to have to rent it. Uh, what words do you live by? This was a tough one. And ultimately, I think I I like to think that I live by the same words that my mother always taught us to live by, which if you can help, you help. I like it. And who is a historical female you admire and why? You know, I thought about this a long time, too. You know, the sort of easy answer would be Justice Ginsburg, because she's so amazing. Um, but to follow up on my, if you can help, you help. Really, the woman who I admire probably more than anybody else was Harriet Tubman, because she she took enormous risks. She She didn't accept the world as it was, and she... She, she helped. 
she um, and she made a huge impact on um, on the lives of many people um, by helping to lead so many people through the Underground Railroad. So she's my person, and she should be on the twenty dollar bill for Pete's sake. Okay, for Pete's sake. And Barbara, thank you so much again for going along with us on on such important subjects. And providing us just in providing us with a top tier education and transfer pricing. Once again, very teachable moments here all around. I also want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify if you haven't already. While you're there, don't forget to check out our short form news podcast. That's the Fiona Show hot off the press all of your transfer pricing regulation changes and headlines from across the world in under 10 minutes this podcast was hosted edited and engineered by yours truly matthew Demello. christy clements is our associate producer marilyn mitchumstrom is our executive producer wishing everyone a very safe and very positive 2021 stay safe wear a mask and hopefully we'll get there sooner rather than later <laughs>